From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's talk about the tech space, PCs. People are still out there buying PCs. And apparently, they bought a lot during the pandemic, and maybe the comps are getting a little tougher here. But let's figure it out. we got some news out there that PC shipments are down pretty big. Anurag Rana, senior tech analyst of Bloomberg Intelligence, joins us. Anurag, what's going on in the PC market? Is this just tough comps? I'm seeing minus 20, minus 30, even Apple minus 40% on PC deliveries, even though, as Matt rightly points out, Apple doesn't sell PCs, they sell Macs. But... What's going on in that in that PC space? No, no, I agree. I mean, I think uh, tough comps is one thing, but you know, the street already had Mac uh, revenue going down 22%. But if the unit shipments is down 40%, I think those numbers need to come down a little bit more, which to me tells me that the consumer spending is actually worse than what we anticipated a, a quarter ago. And that should bleed into other product categories as well. So I'm expecting a lot more downward revision of consensus estimates over the next couple of weeks. So, uh, you expect downward revision of consensus estimates, meaning that you also expect the stock to drop, right? Well, well, that depends on if you are renting it for a quarter or if you're buying it for the long run. So that's usually, you know, truly depends on who the buyer is. But I do expect the revenue numbers to come down. Now, that, that may mean that whoever is taking those numbers down may be increasing it a year from now, because it's not as if, you know, the buyer of that particular MacBook Pro, like yourself, you know, if you're not buying it now, you're going to buy it six months from now or 12 months from now. Except so, for the fact that I bought it 12 months ago because I had some stimmies and, uh, and um, you know, I had to work from home or I had to do school from home. Now I can work in the office. I can go back to school. And plus, why would I spend money on that kind of thing now that I don't have the government sending me checks? <laughs> well, if you... If the, the, you know, the people who uh, the government was sending the checks were not buying MacBook Pros, uh, in my view. So if you are a gamer and you're looking for MacBook Pro with the the next M2 chip, you know, you will spend $1,500 or $2,000 to buy it. But again, that's a, that's a luxury product. It's not something that, you know, everybody can buy. All right. Honor, I just want to get the generic Apple call here. What do you think the consensus call is for this stock right here? It's up 24% year to date, still about 5% down on a trailing 12 month basis. So still got trying to dig itself out of that 2022 hole. What's the, when you, when you talk to some smart tech investors out there, what are they saying about Apple? You know, I think if you look at both Apple and Microsoft, they have been a safety stock for the past several weeks as people are trying to figure out where they go from here. The valuation has gone up for both these companies quite a bit in the last, uh, I would say, several weeks. Now, the question is, you know, what happens to the rest of the tech portfolio? If we do see some stabilization in other tech stocks, then you would see some kind of, I would say, a sector reallocation from, you know, these two safety stocks to some of the other ones. Now, having said that, this is the first time I'm seeing um, a clear indication that Apple numbers needs to come down. You know, that wasn't the case, I would say, in the last 12 months. What do you think about chip usage? I mean, the uh, Samsung story and Taiwan Semiconductor as well has really affected the U.S. market today. We see a jump at Micron. Um, does this mean that a lot of chip suppliers are going to have fewer orders or have they bottomed at this point? 
You see, that's a very tough call to make because a lot depends on, you know, autos and other industries. It's not so much always tied with PCs, although consumer spending, you know, in PCs is a big portion of chips. But I don't think Apple has ever had an issue with supply chain when it comes to, uh, you know, they get it first before anybody else. I'm, sure. I'm less concerned on those factors. For my biggest concern at this point for Apple is, um, you know, what's really going to happen on the um, on some of these products and how bad it's going to get in 2023 before we see a potential bounce back next year. Do they have do they have to introduce a killer new product? Are they going to make some kind of virtual reality uh, AR eyeglasses? Are they going to come well, out with new AirPods that blow us away for <laughs> this new function that we never knew headphones could have or um, is the car coming soon? <laughs> I don't know about the car, but Mark Gurman said that, you know, they will launch uh, the new mixed reality headset in the summer. You know, that is going to truly revive the whole metaverse discussion. But I don't think mathematically it adds anything, uh, at least for the next, uh, you know, this fi financial year. Next year, perhaps it adds a few billion dollars. But, you know, the, the big thing for Apple is going to be the iPhone 15 launch by the end of this year and a revival potentially in the services division. So I think comps are getting easier and easier for Apple for a bounce back next year. But uh, before that, I think we need to have a take a step back on numbers before we can, you know, jump back and say revenue growth is going to get back again into that eight to 10% range. So Anurag, I'm looking at the PGEO function on the Bloomberg terminal for Apple, and I see about 20% of their sales are in greater China. Are the Chinese buying watches and phones and all that kind of stuff? What's the market like? I think this, you know, that's probably only going to be the one bright spot for Apple over the next six months because, you know, the, the China reopening trade and, and the Chinese consumer really hasn't spent quite a bit over the last 12 months. You know, we could see some relief over there to offset the other things that we are talking about. But, uh, you know, again, I think the big jump is going to come from a new hardware design from the iPhone 15, which is most likely going to be in the September, October timeframe. All right. Now, Tim Cook was over there, right, in China. And what was he trying to do? Trying to be nice to them. That's where <laughs> they, you know, it's, it, is, it is the heart and lungs of Apple's supply chain. If something happens to that, Apple's going to be in really tough times. So he's just kind of trying to smooth things out that uh, otherwise mm. is getting worse, frankly. Hey, yeah. guys. <laughs> you look great today. today. Hey, anybody want the new iPhone? Isn't Taiwan yours anyway? <laughs> yes, exactly. So, yeah. all right, we'll have to see about that. I don't know. That's that's still a huge risk there, uh, but I guess trying to smooth it over a little bit. Anurag Rana, senior technology analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us on the phone talking about Apple, uh, Mac shipments, PC shipments across the industry. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get to the next uh, company, which I find really fascinating. I was initially interested because it's called the Howard Hughes Corporation, and who isn't interested in Howard Hughes, yep, right? Right. Um, but it's actually got that name in a roundabout way. Howard Hughes bought the property for one of their master planned um, communities, and now that's the business that they're in but it's not all stuff they got from howard hughes it's mostly general growth properties david o'reilly joins us ceo of the company the ticker is hhc it's publicly traded on the new york stock exchange david so uh, talk to us first give us the overhead view of the howard hughes corporation you have at least three master planned communities right these are big it's not like a few thousands like a hundred thousand people live in them um, and they're thousands of acres so what's, yeah, what's, what's the business 
uh, at the end of model. the day, we play SimCity. We're developing real estate to create the greatest places to live, to have the greatest and positive impact on our residents, tenants, and visitors' lives. Sell land to home builders, take that capital to amenitize, build office, multifamily shopping within our communities, which in turn makes it better places to live, where more, more people want to come live there. Our land values go up, and that self-fulfilling cycle goes on and on. We essentially play SimCity. We decide where the roads go, where the hospitals are, where the homes are, and create what we think are the best communities to live in America. And then they have, then they hopefully, you know, they have the best plumbing, the best <laughs> Wi-Fi, pickleball on demand. Yep. And they also had a good golf course down in Houston. So, all right, I, I, when I see a new company, I go right to the board of directors. I see your chairman of the board is Bill Ackman. I said, why, why is he the chairman? Then I go to the HDS screen, gives you the shareholders. They own 32% of your company. Uh, what's going on there? Why well, is Persian there? Why are they big? Why is Bill on your board? Well, Bill took over uh, General Growth when it filed yep. for bankruptcy. And when he went through the assets of General Growth, he saw these communities, these great places, these unique development opportunities that didn't belong in a public mall read. So the Howard Hughes Corporation is Bill's idea. Okay. He came up with it. He spun us out into our own entity about 12 years ago, and he's been an incredible supporter and hmm. incredible chairman ever since day one. So what do the numbers look like? I mean, um, how are you doing on the top and bottom line? And give us your you know, five-year view. Things have been incredible. The pandemic has been an incredible tailwind to our business. We've sold more land to home builders, which is one of the, the three main areas of revenue for us over the past two years than we have ever before. And we see that momentum, despite a, a respite in the fourth quarter of last year, coming right back very quickly this year, despite higher mortgage rates. That's kind of where I wanted to go. We've seen that spike in mortgage rates. It scared a lot of people out of the market, not me, but it scared some people out of the market. What are you seeing kind of in this spike in real estate, uh, more mortgage rates? I don't think it's the spike of rates that changes home builder demands. I think it's the change. The volatility of yep. rates forces home buyers to pause. Once it settles in, they're right back to the market. We're looking at between a three and five million unit shortfall of housing units needed to meet the household formation of the past 10 years. It doesn't exist today. People need places to well, live. Well, I'll tell you what exists is all the McMansions everywhere. What doesn't exist is starter homes because those guys can't make the same margin on it. How do we fix that problem, do you think? Oh, look, I think that, that it's, it's tough for me to say that there's a magic wand to solve that across the country. Within our master plan communities, which are 20, 30,000 acres plus, we're prescriptive in terms of what homes are being sold for what price where. Prescriptive in terms of the setbacks, the sizes, the pricing, so that we can meet affordability across every price point within our community. Look, over the past year, we've seen home prices shoot up. Mm. And that part of that's material prices getting higher, part of that's labor higher, part of that's my land has been more expensive. And part of that has been home builder margins. Home building margins have been in that 18 to 20% since I can remember. And yep. last year they peaked at 29%. So there's room. We're seeing material prices come down. We're seeing home builders accept lower margins. We're seeing homes, land sellers like ourselves accept slightly lower prices. Now, where do you buy land? land? Like do you, when do you decide I want to build another Woodlands? Where do you find, how do you identify a market that is worthy of your investment of land? So for us, we bought, we bought our last master plan community at the end of last year. Uh, it's called Terra Vallis outside of Phoenix, 37,000 acres today, population zero. Okay. The characteristics that make that great is it's fully entitled for 100,000 homes and 55 million square feet of commercial space. It is immediately adjacent to Phoenix, just north of the I-10 that connects to Los Angeles. So great transportation, great mm. access lower tax business friendly community warmer less expensive to live affordability helps drive our decision making is that only going to be you know the older people like paul and tucker or <laughs> can a young buck like me get in on that i would tell you that that we're going to see this community i think it's going to be more starter homes i think it's going to be more younger families coming into the market right, I, like I think it. this is going to be uh, not not your age-restricted community. We'll have age-restricted communities within the overall 37,000 acres, but the predominance is starting here is going to be your young families moving into the area, finding that quality of life that they can't get in L.A., San Francisco. So you're, so you're now at kind of a ground zero type of situation in that community in Phoenix or that, mm -hmm. that property. What's a lifespan before you get to a woodlands where it is built out and it looks like it's been there forever? Well, the woodlands is celebrating its 50th anniversary okay. next year. 
um, and we're out of residential land. All 28, you know, 28,000 acres are, of the residential side are gone. We're down to 700 acres of commercial space, which is another 20 or 30 years of commercial development. Yep. Um, so the life cycle of Terra Valles and Phoenix could be 40 or 50 years. Wow. Uh, I think it'll be quicker this and time And you have around. developers that you know you want to work with to build the homes, to build the commercial space. Is that, do you pick we those? Are. We, we are the commercial developer. You're we, the commercial. We're master planning. We're deciding where those roads are going to go. We're going to build those office buildings. Oh, you build them as well. Okay. We're going to own them forever. We'll sell the land to home builders. Okay. And they'll build the single family homes uh, and gotcha. bring in the okay. residents. So you can't hook us up with a good contractor. <laughs> I mean, well, I, feel I was like going to ask you. I was going to see if you had a couple recommendations. Everybody wants to know because that kind of labor is tough to come by. But I guess you outsource the home building process, so you're not as worried about you know finding people to put it up. Our labor is horizontal development. It is putting in the water, sewer, roads, curbs, parks, and that labor is still very difficult to find. I think our competitive advantage is that when we're spending a billion and a half dollars a year, and we know we're going to spend it for the next forty years we can keep someone's attention real time rather than have them worry about moving to the next project in six months. So what are some of the big variables for your business? I mean, if your business can perform, presumably, you know, you're saying even at these level of interest rates, what are some of the big variables that kind of you have to manage as a CEO? I think some of the biggest thing is there's two areas. One in the residential land development, we're trying to develop lots just to keep up with underlying home sales. Right. And underlying home sales are very difficult to predict, but we're watching them every day to see which size lots selling, which size homes are selling, and making sure we have those lots available for our home builders to get back into their inventory. And the other side of the equation is really just trying to get a pulse of our residents. We're most successful when we're building the, the amenities that our residents want, whether that's uh, the Kirby Ice House in the Woodlands or whether that's another multifamily apartment building because we're full and rents are raised, rising too quickly. We need to be, we need to make sure we have a finger on the pulse of, of what our residents want and meet that demand. I'm, tell, I'm telling you, it's pickable. It's pickable, yeah, I it, don't know. It, uh. it has been. It, it's been amazing how we've seen parking <laughs> garages and tennis courts being repurposed for pickleball and it gets used very so, consistently. So I see a big drop in revenue in 2020. Was that just all pandemic driven? You guys kind of had to shut down development? It is, but we also, another part of our business is selling condominiums in Hawaii, where we have 60 acres on the beach in an area known as Ward Village between Waikiki and Alamoana Mall. Um, if we don't have a condo tower closed in a particular year, the revenue will drop off. Um, you know, we're not running our business for next quarter's earnings. Right. We're running our business to drive value creation for the next one, three, right. five. 10 years. Fascinating stuff. I knew uh, I knew the Woodlands. I've been there a couple times. I didn't know it was you guys. So very, very cool. Summerlin. Is it called Summerlin outside Summerlin, Vegas? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. played there. TPC Which is, Summerlin. And Howard Hughes has been gone for about 50 years as well. I think he died in 1973. Yeah. You fly into LAX, you see the Hughes Aerospace, which is very cool. David O'Reilly, CEO of Howard Hughes Corporation, trades on the NYSE HHC, talking about some planned communities, some commercial real estate. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. 2022, there was nowhere to hide, really, in the fixed income space. But I look at my INGO uh, function on the Bloomberg terminal for the Bloomberg Index browser, and I see the Bloomberg U.S. Aggregate uh, Fixed Income uh, Index is up 3.5% this year, so a much, much better start to 2023. Let's see if there's more life in the fixed income space. Jason Greenblatt joins us. He's a senior portfolio manager at American Century Investments, proud alumnus from Penn State University, uh, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So what are you doing this year, Jason? I mean, 2022, let's just flush it. That's how bad it was for the fixed income folks. How did you guys start this year, and, and what do you think right now? Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Um, our highest conviction this year is duration, be long duration coming in. Uh, we've certainly seen some evidence. Uh, last month, we saw evidence back in September that higher rates are starting to break things down in the economy. Last month was the banks back in September with UK pension plans uh, having problems. And so being long duration in our mind as the economy is slowing is, uh, is our highest conviction position at the moment. Yeah, we saw, um, well, there was a Bloomberg story out overnight 
about a one and a half trillion dollar wall of maturity coming due in uh, just um, commercial real estate by 2025. So it started to kind of freak me out. I was worried it's kind of nightmares as I read this last night. Um, because these higher rates could really break something, right? We've already seen, as you said, the banking crisis. Are are we giving up on the idea of a soft landing? Can the Fed not achieve that? In our minds, it's a low probability. The the probability of recession, harder landing, certainly has has grown. Uh, the beginning of March with the the banking crisis certainly illustrated that. Matt, you mentioned um, CREs and and what's going on <laughs> with maturity walls. I think if you look inside the data. There are certain loans, um, even here in, in Manhattan, that are being marked at 50 cents on the dollar. Um, you can certainly see that cap rates have gone up substantially. Um, office vacancies, you know, are certainly playing into that, and I think you know higher higher rates are also causing issues with uh, with refinancings. Are you, are you push that blue button? Are you concerned about? financial institutions, banks, and their real estate portfolios? Because I'm not sure, some folks are saying, it, ah, the big money center banks don't have to worry about it so much. It's more the regional banks. How do you think about that? Yeah, I think the, um, the, the regional banks certainly for sure have the, the higher exposure, right? It's something like 40% of their um, of small business loans are coming out of these regional banks. So we need that part of the plumbing to certainly be, be flowing and working. And you, know, you guys at Bloomberg had a great story over the weekend on uh, financial conditions and loans coming down the last two weeks of March. There's clear evidence. Um, I, I think we'll see a little bit more over the next one to two weeks with bank earnings, but we also need one to two more quarters to see if this becomes a trend or not. We, we talk about, first of all, we're not great at running the audio today. No, it's, it was a weekend. You know. True. It was a long weekend, too. It's a Monday. <laughs> it's a mo uh, we talk about the world interest rate probability screen a lot. I'm sure you're familiar with it on the Bloomberg Terminal. It shows what the market is pricing in terms of the Fed moves, right? And currently, uh, we're pricing in four rate cuts through January 31st, 2024. Does that make sense to you? Do you buy it? Our thought is the Fed's going to raise one more time next month in early May and then pause. If something else breaks, then maybe they will cut, but we think they're gonna hold that just to ensure that um, inflation is really under control. So those four rate cuts probably don't happen in 25 basis point increments in our minds. They happen in 100 or 200 basis point increments when something really breaks. Well, that's terrifying though. It is, it is. And so I think the other element, we talked about being long duration, the other element is being short credit risk. Credit spreads in our mind do not reflect um, a recession, a hard landing, um, you know, in the mid to high 400s and high yield credit spreads, it's kind of normal on average over the last 10 years. What's not normal is eight and a half percent because treasury rate, rates are higher. So in our mind, credit spreads are not reflecting that hard landing. And we like being short here and, and waiting for a better entry point. I know earlier in your career, um, you looked at the high yield space, the distressed space. Do I take some risk here and go into the high yield market? If, if so, where can I go? Um, in high yield, we like shorter duration, high quality. So double Bs, that's a, a place that we think offers some value, some safety. There's still some names out there that we think will migrate up to investment grades. So there is total return potential. Um, you know, we had the Citrix deal that, that came. Priced. Yeah, what happened to that? So that, that the second lien that priced at 79 cents, and we had some banks unload off their balance sheets, a leveraged buyout from last year. Um, now, there, is that something that you guys traffic in, that kind of stuff that it really looks like the banks are just kind of, you know, chucking it out in the market wherever it landed? Um, you know, I think at a, at a price, certain investments look interesting. Coming at, at an OID of 21 points, pricing at 79 cents on the dollar. Uh, oh. The market certainly warmed up to it. It's, it's up okay. about four points since it priced okay. last week. All right. By the way, I thought... I saw another interesting story on the, the Bloomberg terminal over the weekend, and I wondered um, if I could put it to a genuine fixed income investor. Great to have you here. Um, we see volatility just off the charts, right, in, in rates in the Western world. The moves are mind-boggling, 60, 70 basis point moves in a day on the two-year. Um, and the Bloomberg story is that that's driving some fixed income investors to China where they have almost no volatility. Do, do you find that uh, believable? 
Um, I mean, look, going from a DM market to an EM market in a, in a more esoteric, you know, less regulated environment to me does not make a whole lot of sense. You know, we like transparency and, and being able to dig through financial statements and have a, a more substantial regulatory body. I, I think the volatility here in the U.S. needs to settle down. Once that settles down, we certainly will have more interest and in inflows into the asset class but we need volatility to come down. So what are some of the sectors that you guys are doing work in these days? And maybe conversely, what are some of the sectors you're just staying away from? Yeah, I think that to, to answer the latter first, I, I think CMBS and leverage loans are, are parts of the market that we're most concerned about. Probably like a lot of our con competitors, the, the rising rates, the, the maturity walls that we mentioned before, those are certainly areas of, of concern. What do we like? We like, um, we like short spread durations, so short maturities, um, particularly in, in parts of more esoteric areas in the securitized market. In my space, in corporate credit, um, you know, I think there's haves and have-nots in, in the banking sector, so that's high-quality investment grade. Um, I think that there are dislocations there, the proverbial baby thrown out with the bathwater. Certainly created some opportunities last month. We're expecting more in, in the near term um, of di these dislocations. I'm just looking through uh, historically the matchups between Penn State and The Ohio State University. Oh, boy. Last year, it was a loss for your Lions. <laughs> the year before that, it was a loss. Before that, it was a loss. The year before that, it was a loss. The year before that, you lost. Uh, the year before that, we won. So when do you think Penn State can come back and beat the Buckeyes? So, so Matt, you're uh, you're talking like a, a true cynic in the fixed income world. Um, <laughs> loss after loss after loss. I will tell you, I visited Columbus, Ohio, for the first time in my my life, my yep. career, a month ago. Um, nice city, but glad to be back in on the East Coast. <laughs> All right, Jason Greenblatt, senior portfolio manager, American Century Investments, with a zinger at the end. This is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street. The promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. I want to get right to our next guest. This is going to be a fascinating discussion. Alexander Isakov. He is the Russia and CEE economist at Bloomberg Economics, uh, based in the Middle East. Uh, Alexander, you are out with a fascinating Bloomberg Economics uh, column today, story today, talking about President Putin's to prioritize his 2024 re-election over the war. How can he do that? Isn't the war front and center for everything? In and super popular at home? Yeah. So that, that seems like it would be the center of his election re-election platform. I exactly. wage this war. So what are we seeing, Alexander? Uh, we're seeing that uh, uh, Russian government and uh, Putin were able to stabilize the economy in the past months. So you are looking at an economy with inflation rate of like 3% and uh, unemployment which is just a bit uh, north of uh, 3%. Our call is that uh, uh, because the, the labor market is so tight, uh, essentially Putin faces a dilemma whether to uh, try and uh, mobilize more people uh, or, uh, and uh, um, take a cost of, uh, cost of this in terms of uh, uh, public support. Mobilization are never too popular with people or just uh, try to muddle through um, until uh, his elections next year in March and uh, just postpone uh, mobilization. So I think uh, our call is that uh, he will prefer the latter. Yeah. So when you say mobilize, you mean uh, draft people, essentially force um, probably you know young, able-bodied men 
to go to the front lines where they risk their lives. That's something that Russia hasn't done yet. What are they doing? What are they doing to, um, you know, fill their ranks? Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, so they've uh, uh, drafted uh, around 300,000 people uh, last uh, October. Uh, but this means that uh, in six months, um, most of those people will be uh, back at home and uh, Russia would need to uh, replenish its uh, troops. Uh, and it will not be easy. So um, uh, Russia needs to find a way uh, which will be uh, less coercive but also very effective in finding another 300,000 people, uh, which will be very, very hard. So, Alexander, to what extent, if any, are the Western sanctions having a negative impact on the Russian economy? Just given some of the data you just recited, it doesn't seem to be hurting that badly. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, the thing is uh, that uh, most of the uh, numbers we are used to look at uh, don't capture the uh, pain, the economic pain that uh, Russia you know, undergoes. For example, if you look at uh, imports, which were like down 20%, um, they reflect the quality of consumption and quality of investment in Russia. These both are uh, declined pretty substantially last year. But from the GDP perspective, any decline in imports is actually neutral. Um, imports don't affect the GDP directly. So it doesn't show up right. in the GDP numbers. But Alexander, from an economic perspective, perspective, given your your uh, Russian background, do, do, do the Russian people is the Russian government prepared, or the Russian people prepared to be what they are today, which effectively sealed off from most of the world from an economic perspective, trading perspective, all the type of stuff? Are they prepared to do this for the long term? I think the answer is uh, yes and no. Uh, if uh, current conditions, especially in the commodity markets, prevail, if uh, oil prices remain uh, north of 80%, uh, then I think uh, Russia can tolerate uh, the sanctions pretty uh, uh, long time. But uh, on the other hand, uh, because Russian international reserves have been frozen, the country is very, very sensitive to any drop in the oil prices. So if commodity uh, prices remain high, the country can tolerate that, but it's very fragile to any uh, downside shock for oil price. And uh, it must be a very fragile inflation situation because it's been relatively low. But with this tight labor market, especially if they need to um, draft more troops, that means wages are going to have to rise. Are they not? Yeah, uh, all correct. Um, and in fact, uh, we are looking at the data on the profitability of private enterprises. And the last mobilization actually was pretty detrimental to that. We see that the private sector margins are, margins are, are shrinking. And I think, yeah, the labor costs will definitely um, reduce growth in the coming years. So, Alexander, just from you know the consumer data, it seems like the war is having little to no impact on the consumers at home. Um, a, is that the case? And B, does it feel like that can go on going forward? I think, uh, so if you look at uh, historically at the impacts of wars on the labor markets, what they typically do is they uh, reduce the premium for high-skill labor, but actually uh, increase the wages for those who don't were not uh, earning as much uh, so essentially they are reducing the um, inequality in uh, labor incomes uh, this is what actually is happening in russia so you don't see uh, much wage growth in the high pay um, sectors such as information technology or banking or finance but actually you see a lot of growth uh, in the manual labor manufacturing services, et cetera, et cetera. So what you see is uh, that consumption is being supported by growth um, in uh, in those uh, um, kind of uh, sectors where labor mm. wages were low previously. All right, Alexander, thank you very much. Really appreciate uh, your reporting here. Alexander Isakov, he is the Russian uh, and CEE economist for Bloomberg Economics. He is based in Dubai. We appreciate getting some of his time there. You're listening to The Tape 
Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's talk about Carvana. You know yes. Carvana. Well, we have my favorite headline writer in all of Bloomberg in, okay. the, in the studio right now, okay. Joel Levington writes these headlines that get me to click no matter what. <laughs> Even now, I see them and I'm like, I know this is one of Joel's headlines. It's going to be a BI credit report, but I'm still clicking because it's like Ferrari eats Maserati's lunch, <laughs> you know. But uh, so, Joel, th- uh, thanks for coming to the studio. You have a great story out about, you know, barbarians at the gate, except for they're not at the gate. They're at the Carvana. Uh, what, what do they have, like? Vending, vending machines. Vending machines. Yeah. Um, this story has been amazing on the stock side, right? Because just climbed so high during the pandemic and then came absolutely crashing down, um, paying silly prices for used vehicles and then apparently not selling them for um, similar uh, amounts. What's the story on the debt side? Yeah, well, it's been equally crazy. Uh, you know, it's just a few years ago that they were issuing bonds with, uh, you know, like a five handle on it or a little over 5%. Now those bonds are more like 45%. So it's, it's been a dramatic turn. And unfortunately for, uh, for stakeholders, it hasn't been good, uh, a good ride. So where, I mean, there's a, they've not, they've not, they're just proposing a debt exchange, right? Right. I said, this is Carvana. They sell these cars. Market or they kinda, don't. Yeah, the, or cars. they don't. The market kind of dried up. Now they've got problems with their equity, but they really got problems with their debt. Did they have too much debt going into this rough patch? You're totally right, Paul. And this is one of those cases where it's the balance sheet that's driving the equity story as opposed to the, the uh, opposite. In this case, they've levered up. They have $8 billion worth of debt. They're not supposed to generate positive EBITDA until 2025. Wow. So, you know, like, how do you make so that work? So who is lending on no cash flow? I mean, you were lending on just the big equity cushion underneath, like a lot of tech companies will do? You know, uh, yeah, exactly. Over the last couple of years, you could pick out any startup tech company or in my area, Tesla, where it was issuing bonds also with a 5% handle on it. And people love the equity story. And they'll tell you like, hey, there's billions and billions of dollars of cushion, as opposed to, you know, like, what are the fundamentals and where can this company go? In the case of Carvana, it's in an industry where you have very thin margins and high capital intensity, and it really can't handle a lot of volatility. So when you put a lot of debt on that, you're kind of setting the stage for oh, problems, and unfortunately, they've, they've run into it. All right, the stock on August 13th, 2021, $360. Stock's trading below nine He's today. an equities guy. And so I can see really bad. I can see buying debt when you've got all this equity underneath me, even though I wouldn't do it because I only lend on cash flows. That's how I was, I was taught at the Chase Manhattan Bank credit training class in uh, 1991. Um, that's how you do it. But now what happens to these debt holders? What are they trying to do here? From credit to star, that's the way it goes, Paul Sweeney. Okay, yes, yes. right. Uh, well, <laughs> well, really, what uh, what uh, what Carvana is doing is trying to set the the stage for there's going to be an exchange, or they're trying to make an exchange happen. Now, this is if they do this, it's really the first of many steps that they would have to do to to change their balance sheet. Because really, here you're trying to exchange uh, about a billion three of debt for a new billion dollar offering, uh, and essentially you you're saving about three hundred million worth of debt and fifteen to twenty million of of interest expense. For a company that has as much debt and so little cash flow as they do, this is just a beginning. It's really just a start to, you know, like get the barbarians, to get the Apollos and the Aries out there to come up with a deal where they can restructure the balance sheet, but do it in a way where the Garcia family can remain in, in control. And that's really why I Do we want the Garcia like, family to remain in control? They want to remain in control. Well, as a <laughs> neutral independent party, I would say you would not want them in control because they have made so many bad choices along the way, including debt financing, uh, a $2 billion acquisition of Odessa at a time where, uh, where the industry was starting to go down. Uh, they've missed earnings expectations for like nine of the past 10 quarters. Really what you need to, to do is strip out costs, 
reslate the balance sheet to have a clean balance sheet. Uh, we've estimated that it should be about 94% of the debt needs to get wiped out. Oh, so a really huge this is, hit. I mean, your point is that um, debt holders may be happier in bankruptcy. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly, Matt, because if you came out with a clean company and a story of, hey, let's get back to basics, let's reduce our 13% difference in SG&A, and here's a path to growth, that, that stock price can certainly turn around. And our expectation is that if it was a clean balance sheet, like bondholders might got, get 75 cents back on the dollar relative to where bonds are, which is kind of more in the 40 to 50 zone. So let me ask, I, I looked through your uh, bank of stories that you work on and you cover the car industry very closely, obviously. Uh, one that catches my eye is a, a concern I think that we have uh, across markets um, it, which is about refinancing. Um, I think the, the, the point that you're making here is Ford needs to refinance a ton of debt, right? Um, as, as rates rise, Ford Credit may face $570 million headwind in refinancing debt is the headline. As rates rise, is this gonna be a problem for a lot of the lending arms of the big car makers? I think so, it, you know, and it becomes a game, Matt, of where do you reduce the pain, right? It, it, when you have a captive finance company like a Ford or a GM, you can do that in the form of incentives on the you know, MSRP, on the, on the price that you're paying for a car. So you could reduce that as a way to making things more affordable. But really that's the issue is affordability. It's $48,000 for your average car. And when the average American makes $70,000 a year, you can't afford a car. So how do you make that work and keep the volume in your plant going? And it, it's either gonna be through uh, the finance company and, and the finance company eating the interest rates on it, or it's going to be through pricing on the cars. I hope it's through the finance company eating interest rates. Why? Just because oh, you don't. Wanna... I don't want to pay it. I don't want to pay that much. Are prices ever going to come down in the car industry? Or are they resetting these new highs? Because I mean, they've incredible inflation. I'm not sure what the number is, but over the last three or four years, ridiculous increases in prices. Dude, the monthly nut is just impossible to cover for the average Joe, right? It's ridiculous. And I think that's, you know, it's it's a great question, Paul. And I think it, if you, even if you asked internally, I think our equity analysts might have a different view than I do. I personally believe that pricing has to come down. I think you're seeing that with Tesla, right? It, 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 if you look at any of their models, they're down Second 20 to 25% yeah. uh, this year. And a Model 3 now is about $36,000 or $37,000. So if you're saying, hey, do I want the Model 3 or the Honda CRV? That's a battle, and that's where Tesla is going to be, p be picking up share, and I think others are going to eventually have to follow because economically, uh, you know, they're 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 very high uh, in terms of cost. Um, I, I Ford, mean, Ford has market. followed with the Mo with the Mo Mustang Mach E in terms of price cuts, but not yet with right. the. F-150 Lightning that you drove. What was the sticker price 94 on that? 94 large. <laughs> a 94 grand for a pickup truck. truck right? I mean, and that's, I mean, so honestly, I mean, I'm not even joking anymore. I mean, the average American pickup truck buyers are already used to laying out 40, 50, 60 grand. I'm sure that was, you just, can you do 90? I don't know. $94,000. I don't know what demand destruction is going to look like there. And that's in addition all. to all the software that they're trying to sell behind that's it. The, so, yeah. you know, like there's a recurring revenue stream that they're trying to attach to the electric car. <laughs> so, you know, like something has to give. And I would think this is a case where the companies are going to wind up having to give. And they're starting to see it, right? You see GM, Ford, Mercedes, they're all announcing head cut uh, plans over the next years because they recognize like you have to change your cost structure to be in a world that can't afford these crazy, you know, high prices. Does Lucid survive? Does Rivian survive? Do these EV startups make it? I think they survive because you find over and over again, and maybe McLaren is a great example of it. You find these companies that find people that are willing to take a bet on a brand name. Investors in the Middle East. It, and <laughs> in the case of Lucid, it might be an investor in the Middle East because they already own 60% of the company. Yeah. <laughs> in, in the case of Rivian, they have enough flexibility that they can last uh, at least a year or two before, uh, before right. you have to worry about that. Good stuff as always. Joel Levington, he is a director of credit research. Uh, Bloomberg Intelligence he covers and his real day job he covers some autos and some industrial credits and things like that the management is just a ruse uh, he actually does a real <laughs> job and he's a real analyst but appreciate
having to come in the studio. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's talk real estate now. Let's talk commercial real estate, and we can do that with our next guest, Christine Mastandria, COO of Whitestone REIT. Uh, that's a publicly traded REIT. WSR is a ticker you can load into the Bloomberg uh, terminal, about $430 million market cap. Christine, thanks so much for joining us live in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So post-pandemic, you get a gold star for showing up live, not phoning it in. Talk to us about Whitestone. What type of real estate do you guys specialize in? Oh, we specialize in smaller centers, basically uh, focusing on community and convenience for our retail. So, you, so okay, so not a technical term, kind of like a strip mall type thing? Similar. And All right, so Amazon is a thing out there. I've actually mm-hmm. become very, very adept on Amazon since the pandemic and the lockdown. But I can't, and I've heard that's just not good for bricks and mortar retailer. Mm-hmm. Retail. How do you guys approach that and deal with that? So we saw that coming a long time back, especially with the change of people in the workforce and time crunch consumers. So Amazon just solved the problem for people. So we right. focus primarily on services. Okay, so I go to see one of your properties, and it's not going to be necessarily selling goods that competing against Amazon. It's a services, whether it's a nail salon or something along those yeah, lines. Yeah, that's right? correct. So primarily around food, grocery services such as health, wellness, uh, medical. Right. In addition to that, there'd be, uh, you know, your financial services, yep. UPS logistics, and so. What kind of markets mm-hmm. attract you guys? And I think I know the answer, but go ahead. <laughs> so we focused on the southern markets primarily. Jeez. Yeah. What's going on? There's the rest of this country. Everybody's <laughs> abandoning us. Go ahead. So what? No, they came from Chicago. I they saw did. what was happening <laughs> <Yeah>. there. <laughs> and so focused on uh, fast growing markets. So we started in Dallas. Houston, San Antonio, then moved into Austin and also in the Phoenix market, Scottsdale, all the way down to Mesa, Gilbert Boy, Chandler. All winners, certainly post-pandemic winners, right? Those are, you just listed the, the names of the cities. So when you go into a market, what do you, I mean, do you look for population growth? Is that kind of a you know, good? Oh, job growth, job growth. Job growth, job yeah. growth. Yeah, okay. openly mobile, uh, really looking for good, strong secondary school systems as well. Okay, so I'm guessing you guys are... Like most folks in real estate, uh, interest rate sensitive. Talk to us about the market today mm. versus, you know, a year or two ago. Yeah, it's a great deal of change, as you can imagine. But this uh, provides the opportunity that people know how to operate real estate versus just financial engineer it. So who were like who were some of the people maybe you were competing against, you know, when rates were low um, versus kind of today? Like what happened to who were those people and what happened to them? Well, in most cases, passive investors that just bought the properties. Uh, in our case, we we have smaller centers, so it'd be local owners, but passive passive owners versus active owners like we are. So they're getting squeezed out of the market. It gives us an opportunity. So we read a lot about, or at least here in New York, you know, some of the big <clears throat> private equity funds getting into real estate. What's been your experience? Do you run into them at all? If so, are, are they... How do you compete? Uh, they don't compete in our space. That's why we stayed in smaller centers. So it okay. might be a little bit more of a hands-on operation than a larger center, but it's benefited us quite, All right, so quite when well. You, when you go look for a new property, um, what do you guys look for? What does your team look for? Oh, in most cases, it's stickiness. So we use Placer AI, and we also use Esri as uh, digital platforms to understand the communities. So we really dive into our users and who's the end-end user. And that allows us to find um, to find the most attractive locations. So what type of, I mean, do you like to have one, or do your shopping centers te- or retail spaces mm-hmm. tend to have like a big kind of anchor tenant and then you build around it? How do you like to yeah. So do I don't like taking a lot of risk in big anchors. I mean, there's, uh, there's always a difficulty if you lose a big anchor to have to refit somebody moving into that space. So we have a tendency to stay in the smaller shop space. So we found that 2,500 square feet to about 3,000 square feet is about the most interchangeable use with the widest uh, amount of users. So who do you tend to compete against a lot? Like even now, uh, is it other REITs? Is it just local privately owned real estate development companies? Who are some of your competitors? So mostly local privately owned, although we're starting to see some other REITs move into our space. So if it, typically, if I go up against a private local person, presumably that person has something maybe I don't, such as local knowledge. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you guys build that? Do you buy, like you say, I want to develop Phoenix. Do you just send your team into Phoenix? 
Uh, or do you maybe buy a team that's already in Phoenix that, that knows uh, the market? No, we usually build our teams in our markets. So, and very much uh, focusing on location again, using uh, as much analysis as possible that we can that we're provided with our platforms to understand. So, what what was your business like during the pandemic? Like, how did it just impact you guys? Oh, we did great. I think it's counterintuitive to a lot of the national tenants. In our case, we had the highest uh, recovery rates and also the highest collection rates in the industry. So what, why is that? I mean, I just, I would think like just Main Street, mm -hmm. USA, town I live in, um, a lot of vacancies, mm -hmm. a lot of company, uh, businesses went out of business. So it was almost every third or fourth or fifth store was out of business. Now that's literally Main Street, USA, not mm -hmm. at a shopping center. Mm -hmm. um, did you experience that? And if so, did you get people back in there? No, I found, especially in our markets, people were pretty active. And in addition to that, we had, um, we were pretty, I, I'm always amazed at, you know, American business and especially growing entrepreneurs. They're the ones that flex the first. Yep. They caught the opportunity with a lot of customer switching at that point, especially with the nationals when they're closed because they're dictated by, you know, their home office. Right. Uh, the other thing that I found really interesting through this whole thing is um, kind of the resilience of our portfolio and also the resilience of the American entrepreneur. Yep. As we've talked about that a lot on the show. But if you go down to Lexington Avenue right there, a lot of empty retail between 58th and 59th Street. Yeah. It was once, it was before the pandemic, it was full. Uh, Victoria's Secret and some other box store mm -hmm. or something, I can't remember. Now there's just a chocolate store that survived the pandemic. People bought chocolate during the pandemic and the lockdown. And a bank just opened up on the corner. But mm -hmm. you see town, cities like this, you're probably like, boy, I'm glad I'm not in big cities, right? Uh, yeah, I, we've avoided the big central business districts. Again, uh, pretty tough. The rental rates there are pretty difficult too. Size space, um, the ability to flex to the user. Most of those are goods. It's a little difficult to put in a service user in those type of locations as well. So um, yeah, interesting. All right, yeah. last question. What's the, what's the growth outlook for you guys over the next one to two years? Oh, I think we're well positioned. I mean, already in our markets, we're over 90% occupancy in all of our markets. And I think um, there's not a lot of retail being built because of what happened in the past. So right. things uh, look good to come. Oh, interesting. Good stuff. All right, Christine, thank you so much for joining us. Christine Mostandria, uh, COO of Whitestone REIT. Again, that is a publicly traded uh, company. WSR is the ticker uh, for the retail space, the commercial retail space. Some uh, weakness out there in a lot of big markets. We certainly see it here in New York City, certainly in Midtown, but a lot of the country uh, doing very well and good for them. Uh, so it's good to see some good growth out there in retail. The consumer remains very strong. The consumer has a job. That's good for all things retail. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.